Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And welcome once again to Space Nuts. I'm Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me as always is astronomer from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, Fred Watson. G'day, Fred. G'day, Andrew. How's it going? Oh, really well, really well. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> uh, fighting our way through a hot western New South Wales summer. We've had some uh, pretty extraordinary temperatures here in the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, getting up around the 38, 39, 40 Celsius mark. So it feels like we're closer to the sun than most people at the moment. That's right. Yes, it's. Um, it, I guess, though, you just... Think yourself lucky you're not on Venus, where the minimum temperature is about 430 Celsius. So. Yeah, well, when I open the oven, that's, <laughs> that's right. More or less what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> now, today we're talking about a, a few things. Uh, one that's uh, happened recently and, and uh, can be compared to another event that we're aware of in Russia. We spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, with a large space rock exploding over the Atlantic Ocean, which is quite extraordinary. And we're going to also talk about uh, these, these gravitational waves that were announced uh, not so long ago, probably in astronomy terms, one of the biggest announcements uh, in uh, the scientific world in, in many years. But there's also a little bit of a side bet going on with this particular story, which we'll also get to. Don't hedge your bets. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but first, let's talk about this this uh, fireball that um, that seems to have rivaled the event we uh, we talked about a couple of weeks ago that happened not uh, too long back in Russia with with all those buildings being rocked by the explosion at Chelyabinsk. Yes, um, that's true. With with that um, situation where people were actually filming this thing coming down to earth and and it exploded with such ferocity that it caused uh, a lot of damage on the ground. Now we've had another one that's been even bigger. Um, it's it's the other way around, um, Andrew. Um, this one is actually quite a lot smaller. Oh. Uh, and I might have misinformed you in the uh, in our chat before there. Uh, it's it's smaller, but it's a similar one. It's a similar event, and indeed, it is the biggest recorded uh, fireball since the Chelyabinsk uh, the, the Chelyabinsk um, event back in uh, 2013. So what happened was um, actually uh, not long after uh, noon, in fact, mid-afternoon on the 6th of February, uh, off the coast of Brazil, uh, there was uh, a space rock that uh, hit the Earth's atmosphere, uh, got to a height of something like um, 30 kilometers before it exploded. Uh, very, very brilliantly. And that was um, actually about a thousand kilometers off the Brazilian coast. Now that, that height, 30 kilometers, is very similar to the height that the Chelyabinsk 
uh, object exploded at. Okay. But that was a much bigger object. It was um, getting on for 20 meters across. Uh, this rock uh, off the coast of Brazil is probably probably about half that size, still a sizable chunk of material. Uh, and as a result of that, the the, the seismometry and, uh, and similar studies that have been done that actually recorded this event have calculated about 13,000 tonnes of TNT equivalent, uh, which is compared with about um, half a megaton of TNT for the for the Chelyabinsk event. What, so what the, would have uh, happened uh, on the water with, with that uh, kind of power? Um, probably... Uh, it would only have affected anybody who was in the vicinity. Mm -hmm. uh, that there would have been uh, certainly an appreciable sonic boom from it, probably some five minutes after the after the event itself. Um, uh, you, you remember what happened at Chelyabinsk was that uh, this object uh, basically exploded in the atmosphere. Yes, everybody captured it on their, their dashboard cameras, but people who were in buildings saw this brilliant light. Uh, through their windows. And in fact, it was estimated that it was 30 times brighter than the sun, uh, which is quite incredible, really. You know, we think of uh, very little being brighter than the sun, but this thing was 30 times brighter. So everybody rushed to the windows to find out what had caused this incredible light. And it was the fact that they went to the windows uh, and the fact that the sonic boom takes a significant time to reach the ground. That's why there was so much damage, so many injuries. Um, more than a thousand people were injured uh, because of things like uh, uh, masonry falling down, broken glass, things of that sort. Now, over the ocean, well, first of all, the the, uh, the event this month was was actually much smaller than the Chelyabinsk uh, event, but uh, also the fact that it was over the Atlantic Ocean, you'd have had to be pretty unlucky to be on a ship that was directly underneath it because that might have done damage of a similar kind, you know, blowing in portholes or something like that. Uh, but uh, there's no recorded no recorded sighting of it. It's all been picked up by uh, things like the pressure wave that goes through the atmosphere and maybe even um, seismometry. If the that pressure waves like that can actually disturb the, the ground surface. Now, we're talking about a water surface here, mm. so it would have been harder to detect, but there may have been some of these uh, remote sensing buoys that could, could actually pick it up. Um, it's uh, remarkable that we know about things like that, even when nobody sees them. Yes, indeed. So, uh, and and yet there's another one that's got through and, and landed <laughs> without yeah. our knowledge. <laughs> yeah, we we don't actually know whether it um, whether it would have hit the ground. Uh, it it may not have done because fireballs like that, depending on the velocity that they hit the atmosphere at, uh, they sometimes burn up completely. Mm. That brings in the question, the Chelyabinsk uh, event and this event, uh, as you said, they, they exploded around 30 kilometres above the surface, but that's well within our atmosphere. It is, yeah. So what, yeah. what's happening at 30 kilometres that's causing the, um, the, the, the rocks to explode? It's just where the, um, it's that, that, the height at which the, um, you know, the, the atmospheric pressure, the drag that the object feels, uh, com combined with its its incoming speed, where that reaches a temperature, it causes a skin temperature high enough that it will blow it to pieces. Uh, so it's all about the thermodynamics. Most um, meteors, Andrew, the shooting stars that we see at night, very commonly, they mostly are at a height about three times that amount, something like 90 kilometres uh, above the 
Earth's surface. The atmosphere there is much thinner, but these objects are much smaller. They're usually just the size of a grain of dust sometimes, uh, and they're traveling very fast, so they vaporize instantly, and they don't last very long. Uh, this, this object would, like the Chelyabinsk uh, meteor, meteorite, would have lasted for quite a number of seconds. Mm. All right. Oh, well, I guess we'll just have to keep our eyes peeled if these things are keep, yeah. going to keep, keep popping up. Peeled. The estimate is that um, about 30 of these things, between 1 and 20 metres in diameter, burn up in the atmosphere every year. So you, you, it's worth keeping your eyes open. Definitely. All right. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now to another event that's made huge news in the astronomical and scientific world, and that is the detection of ripples uh, or gravitational waves, if you like, that uh, seem to have arrived um, about six years ago and they've only just kind of detected them with, uh, with the, the technology that's available and uh, only recently announced that they are there. Um, this was a, a theory going back a long, long time and now it's, now it's been proven, Fred. The theory, you're quite right, the theory is 100 years old. Uh, so from Einstein's theory of relativity, which is a theory of how gravity works, that theory says that space is very slightly flexible, not very flexible, but just enough that you could actually get waves traveling through it. And so since then, people have wondered how you might detect these waves. And in the last 20 or 30 years, there have been serious attempts to, uh, to, to, to make that detection. Uh, as the technology has improved and we've learned more about uh, the structure of space and things of that sort, we've realized that you have to have incredibly sensitive detectors uh, to pick up these ripples in space. And uh, over the last decade or so, uh, what's been happening is, has been that a, a machine, actually two machines in the United States, which are called LIGO, that's the Large Interferometri Interferometric Gravitational Wave Observatory. There's, there's you, you astronomers with your naming things two, again. Two, total gobbledygook, that's right. <laughs> but, you know, it's, um, but at least it, uh, it, it accurately describes what it is, and all you have to remember is LIGO. LIGO is the, the acronym. So these things basically measure very, very small disturbances, and they use lasers, which is why the name is like that. Why are there two of them? Well, they're separated by uh, several thousand kilometers at opposite ends of the United States. Mm -hmm. So um, actually, some in Australia, some in the UK and Europe, uh, but many in the U United States have been working on upgrading this instrument to make it more sensitive to the kind of uh, gravitational disturbance that we expect to travel through space. And uh, there has, they have met with success. And now, um, it wasn't six years ago, Andrew, it was actually um, last September when they detected the, oh, okay. uh, the event. Uh, I think six years ago was when they started the major part of the upgrade. So uh, the, the event was, uh, in fact, the new machine, uh, the upgraded machine was switched on at the beginning of September. And by the 14th of September, uh, it had made its first detection. And that uh, was of such um, importance that uh, we, we scientists haven't stopped talking about it since then. Uh, because for the first time, we've detected the effect of two black holes coalescing together uh, in a kind of dance of death. They spun up very quickly. And it's that chirp of gravitational waves from the, the two black holes spinning together and coalescing that have now been detected. You can calculate how far away the object was. You can calculate how big the black holes were. And in fact, it was, it's estimated to be 
billion light years away. So this is an event that took place 1.3 billion years ago. Uh, I just can't get my head around those things. When you say that sort of stuff, it just, I just, you know, what, what were we then? Just specks of dust or something? The um, uh, life had formed at that time. Yes, ah. there were there were rudimentary living organisms on the Earth. Uh, we were way way down the track though. Mm. Uh, but yes, it's um, that's quite right. It's like you know, if you drop a stone into a pond, uh, a flat pond, it takes a while for the ripples to get to the edge uh, or wherever where you know wherever you want to uh, uh, to look at them. And the same thing happens with these gravitational waves. The the uh, disturbance takes place. The black holes coalesce. And the ripples spread throughout space. And uh, 1.3 billion years later, these strange little overgrown microbes on a rocky planet around a fairly ordinary star detect them because we've made the instrument to do it. Um, why is it so important? Well, this actually opens up a completely new window on the universe. It's, it's like it's almost akin to the invention of the telescope, Andrew, because it's, it's, it's of such importance in in uh, allowing us to see uh, events not by their light or their radio waves, but by the effect they have on the space around them, their gravity. And uh, eventually, when uh, instruments like this are improved, uh, perhaps not with this version, but with future versions of these gravitational wave detectors, we may be able to probe the mechanics of the Big Bang itself. At the moment, we can't do that because the Big Bang is actually hidden from us because of the glow that it left behind. We can only see the glow. We can't see the Big Bang itself. Mm. Uh, gravitational waves might allow us to penetrate that, and that will be big-time news, which I hope you and I will talk about. Yeah, well, in, in terms of um, discoveries and announcements, this one could well happen sooner rather than later by the sound of it. Uh, now that we know these things exist, they've detected them, then they can work out how to read them better and uh, update exactly, the equipment right. and, and who knows yeah. what we'll learn. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we may even learn more about physics itself because gravita uh, gravity is one of the most, well, it is the single most mysterious force. We really don't understand gravity at all, but we might understand it better with results that have come from these experiments. And maybe even one day, um, we could perhaps learn how to manipulate gravity. That would be quite sensational. Which was portrayed <laughs> in a recent movie called Interstellar. That's the one. Yes, mm. that's right. Indeed. Yeah. In fact, uh, the the beings involved in that particular film used gravity to communicate with humans as we know them. And um, yeah. Yeah, so the story unfolded. Uh, exactly. Far ahead of real science. The uh, science fiction <laughs> guys have got it all sewn up and uh, maybe science will follow science fiction. Well, it's happened before. <laughs> uh, and, and there's a side bet on this particular gravitational <laughs> wave story. And I'm talking literally uh, the scientists that were looking for these ripples made a bet some time ago that they would find them by a certain date Indeed, and, uh, and lost the bet. And they lost the bet, that's right. <laughs> so it's two people I know, actually, Sheila Rowan and uh, Jim Huff, who are both very prominent in the world of astronomy and uh, physics in the UK. They are members of the LIGO uh, science team. And back in 2006, I think it was, they placed a bet uh, with a well-known betting company in, uh, in the UK, Ladbrokes. They placed a bet that uh, of £25 each that said that gravitational waves will be detected by 2010. And the odds uh, on that bet were 100 to 1. So if gravitational waves have been detected 
Before 2010, they'd have won 2,525 pounds. Quid. <laughs> Quids, that's right. Uh, however, it didn't work out. But there's some very nice words from those scientists. And in particular, Sheila Rowan has made the point that, um, yes, they lost the bet, but what's come from the, this discovery is worth far, far more than that to a scientist. And I think that's probably right. Yes, it is. And just to, to finish up, that wasn't the only bet. There were bets made on the um, <laughs> discovery of the Higgs boson. There were, yes, which I think and... was six to one, if I remember right. Yeah. Did they win that one? Uh, no, I don't think they did. There, 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 there were bets. Um, there was one uh, on the Higgs discovery of the Higgs boson. There was another one which I can't remember, but the Titan, final one finding um, yes, finding life, finding on, life Titan. on Titan. That's right, which mm. I think was at a thousand to one. So that would have been a good one to put. Yeah, in. and the other one was uh, the arrival of fusion power. Fusion have, we, have we got power, there yet? No, we haven't. We're nowhere near it. Not actually. there yet. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Well, we watch with interest. Maybe you never know. Maybe. Enough, enough people put bets on they can finance the discovery of these well, things. Well, that's right. You know, it's called crowdfunding. And maybe <laughs> that's the way it's going. Exactly. <laughs> Always good to talk to you, Fred. Thank you very much, Andrew. Good to talk to you too. Take care. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. You've been listening to Space Nuts. We'll catch you again next week. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.